All right, I'm going to be taskmaster and try to get everybody in their seats, round up our missing panelists who's floating around here somewhere, and talk over you guys while you get settled. Because I'm, I knew, I'm new to the capital, and I know it's a tough crowd with you policy wonks, so. <laughs> All right. So as you can see, um, this event was put together very quickly. And I appreciate you guys coming, because usually it should be done with a little more advance notice, but um, I'm kind of new at this. I'm starting out, and I'm a masochist trying to put on an event every week. This is the third one in three weeks. But this is the first one kind of in uh, a new way that uh, we're calling policy in a pint. And let me introduce myself first. My name is Vanessa Richardson. I have to make sure I don't stand by this speaker. My name is Vanessa Richardson, and I'm officially executive director of California Groundbreakers. And what it is, it's a civic engagement organization that the mission is to highlight cool people who are doing cool things here in Sacramento, uh, the uh, capital region, the Central Valley, and the state, uh, and have them come and talk about what they're doing in very cool venues like this. Uh, if any of you are familiar with the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, it's, that's the model. Uh, I grew up here, but I lived in San Francisco and was on the board there. We put together events, everything from how China's economy will affect the U.S. Uh, to why dating sucks in San Francisco, which was actually a very big draw. That was the biggest event I ever put together was dating in San Francisco, so go figure. <laughs> Lots of very frustrated singles. So I, when I moved back here last year and saw a lot of people moving here from the Bay Area or who had never left and believed in San Francisco, uh, Sacramento, excuse me, I thought, why can't we have something like this? We are the capital. We have a lot of innovative things coming out of Sacramento on its own merits. And there's a lot of topics and a lot of people who can talk about these topics. So this is the fourth event. Um, we did one in May, which was kind of the test pilot. We did two at the barn the past two weeks, and this is the uh, fourth. And policy in a pie is pretty much focused on policy, what's going on in the capital, and how it affects you and me as vo voters, as residents, as taxpayers, as consumers, as, as everyone. And I, my day job is I'm a journalist, so I like to ask questions in general, but I also, as a voter who got the general ballot uh, and thought, do I really have time to read this? Do I really know the difference between Prop 62 and 66? But I have to know, I'm voting on it. Uh, I thought, I think maybe other people are in my shoes. And then when someone who I know, uh, who does work at the Capitol, said pretty much the same thing, I don't know anything about Prop 62 or 66, and I work in the Capitol, I thought, okay, there you go. So this is kind of the kickoff, uh, talking about the general process of elections, campaigning, um, voter registration, but then the goal is between uh, next week and November 3rd, Thursday, November 3rd, to have some events that are focusing on ballot initiatives, both local and state. And actually, I did confirm one. <laughs> uh, I'm working with Ruth Stoller. They've, they've been very gracious enough to host many of these uh, events. Um, 
I'm partnering with Wonk Wednesday on a few of them. We're going to be doing Measure B, the Sac County one, on October 28th. And I will keep you posted. And speaking of keeping you posted, kind of like I'm a one-person show, I do have a, um advisory council that's been very helpful. But uh, it's kind of bare bones. And I am working on revising the website, which will relaunch on Friday, and then getting an email list rather than having you sign in, basically get it modernized but the goal is to keep you up to date with events because we're going to have a lot of events also i did want to mention um also to thanks to roost dollars but thanks also to our food provider little dinner party project <laughs> behind the curtain i think you guys if you want yeah pop your head out and greg jalal and janelle thank you guys yeah delicious delicious food and it goes really well with the beer, because. <laughs> so I just wanted to say quickly before we get started, um, a few thanks to people who helped put this event together. Uh, Mary McCune of Fem Dems, who's not here. Katie Maple, and of course, James and Paul for being here. Uh, J.E. Pano of Roostaller for hosting us little dinner party project for providing the food. And last but not least to you guys, I know you're kind of taking a chance on me. You don't know who I am or what this organization is, but it's a start starting up and uh, I appreciate it and I will keep you posted on progress. Also, I just wanted to say um, I value input from people who work in the capital and also various industries. Like I said, I'm, I'm kind of new to town after having left for 20 years. I definitely don't know much about the machinations of the capital, but there's a lot that's going on that you know about that people like me should know about, you know, constituents. So any suggestions for topics? Uh, any suggestions for people who would be good to speak uh, for or against a certain ballot initiative that may be under the radar but people need to know about? Uh, any great venues that you think along the lines of Roostaller? I'm all ears. My email is vanessa at californiagroundbreakers.org or info at californiagroundbreakers.org. Either one will work. So any suggestions, comments, thoughts, I'll take them. So thank you. And now let's get started. And usually what I do is I start down the line next to me on my left and I ask the panelists to introduce themselves. And I wanted to ask you guys, besides saying your name and your title, what you're working on right now. And on a personal note, I always like to know a little background about each of you. And this point, I'd like to ask, what made you decide to get into the world of politics on a full-time basis? What inspired you? So start with Paul. Hi, my name is Paul Mitchell. I'm the vice president of political data. I also own a little company called Redistricting Partners which is like on hibernation mostly right now, but uh, every 10 years it gets up and going, working on statewide and local redistricting. Um, what I'm working on right now is polling samples and polling samples and polling samples. Uh, and essentially my day job uh, is working with the voter file and providing clients with data for whatever it is that they're needing to do, whether it's an online campaign center or precinct walking or mailing or phoning or whatever. Um, we're at a period of the campaign right now where polling seems to be one of the big driving things that's taking up most of my day in modeling. Um, and uh, what got me into doing this as a full-time occupation, uh, I was living in Orange County, 
I had hair down on my ass. I body surfed every day. I went to school. I went to Orange Coast Community College barefoot most days. Um, I was a massage therapist wanting to like go be like a hippie the rest of my life. And um, me and Scott Lay and this guy Dustin Corcoran uh, started up a College Democrats thing in 1991, uh, kind of as it was the primary, the Clinton primary in 1991. And uh, I found myself being crazy and stressed out and campaign focused and, uh, you know, me and uh, me and a group of folks just kind of having this big political moment, and that's when I really knew that I wanted to get involved in politics. I came up to Sacramento with uh, the Community College Student Association and uh, did work in Sacramento, and that's what kind of sparked me into doing this uh, and made me know that I wanted to do it as a career. Hi, my name is uh, James Schwab. I'm Chief of Legislative Affairs for Secretary of State Alex Padilla. Uh, I'm currently working on my the big focus for the next about 54 hours is a piece of legislation I've been staffing for about two years uh, on election modernization reform that I'm sure we'll go into later. And uh, it's on the governor's desk and he has 54 hours to sign or, sign or veto it. So I'll be checking my phone every two minutes to see if I get a text. But uh, that's sort of the big project uh, on my plate right now. Uh, what got me motivated and inspired was I was kind of apolitical uh, at my post-high school years. I was working in the restaurant industry, wanted to kind of be a chef and maybe even own a restaurant someday. And then you had sort of 9-11 hit. And it was really the, the post-9-11 world of the attack on civil liberties and the uh, targeting of, of Muslim Americans for discrimination and harassment by the government that really motivated me to learn more and I started uh, going to a local um, chapter of the ACLU uh, and some of their um, talks they put on about what was going on with the Patriot Act and, and some other laws that were being passed and you really saw the power of government to do good and to do bad and that really inspired me to get more involved, to volunteer more, to go back to college and, and get a uh, degree in uh, international relations, which of course put me in Sacramento. Um, and uh, I just loved it since. It's just a, it's a great job and you get to try to use the government for, for good instead of, uh, instead of evil. So. Hi there, I'm Caitlin Maple and many of you actually know me as Katie Maple. It's my alter ego. Um, I work for a good governance nonprofit called California Forward, um, and I am a jack of all trades. Uh, I project direct currently for our 50 state solution project, which I'll talk about a little bit later. I also deal with a lot of our legislative work. I do and our, all of our, um, I work under our partnership for public transparency, which aims to hold elected officials accountable and make government more efficient and effective in general. Um, and what got me into this? Uh, I got my degree in psychology from Davis, and I just remember looking at um, the news and realizing how incredibly fascinating the train wreck of politics is and policy, <laughs> um, particularly in California. And I was just like, wow, that'd be really interesting to get into. And so I fell into it and started working into the Capitol at one point um, and was so frustrated by how ineffective and inefficient it was that I was like, this is not going to work for me. Um, and so I went on and I, I started working at California Ford where the, the real goal is how do you bring government closer to the people and how do you make it more efficient and effective. So I'm going to ask questions now for about 45 minutes and then you'll notice there's a mic 
uh, right there. After I ask, it's your turn to ask questions. Uh, and also, I should just mention there are a few uh, chairs up here. I hear a pool game going on, so if anyone you know wants to be right up close, there's chairs. So I think one thing you guys all have in common is obviously you're very focused on what's going on right now with the election, and you have um, like some pretty brand new projects going on that I wanted to ask you more about. And so, Katie, to kick off, since you had mentioned 50 State Solution, what is that? And tell us about it. Yeah, happy to. Um, so the, the idea came about about a year and a half ago. Um, and it came from this concept that there's so much gridlock happening at the federal level that nothing's getting done. It's supremely frustrating. And so what's happening um, in states and localities across the nation is you're seeing what we like to call laboratories of democracy pop up, where they're implementing really refreshing and innovative reforms because they know shit's not going to get done at the federal level. And so you're seeing things like citizens redistricting, which Paul has a big part in. Um, you're seeing things like voting reform, um, primary process reform, um, voting style reform, like what Jane's working on. Um, and so we realized that a lot of these um, states and localities are working in silos and they're not learning from one another and they're reinventing the wheel in a lot of cases and so we saw a value in aggregating all of that information and putting it in one place and so what we've created we just launched our website very recently we've created an interactive data map where you can click on any state and you can figure out okay what's their primary process like what there's what's their voting style do they have redistricting commissions what's that like um, and then also looking I have a team of interns that's been looking at what are these really innovative reforms that are either happening or they're about to happen, so they're in the initiative process or in the legislature currently, um, and putting them in one place. And this is all gonna lead up to a convening at the end of January in San Francisco, where we're putting together about 100 different organizations from across the nation um, to really talk about what are the reforms that are happening and how we can, we don't want it to be a show and tell, because that's what a lot of conferences are in the nonprofit world. We know what you're doing. We've already put it in one place. What we want to do is have a conversation about how to catalyze and make sure that these reforms are happening and that we're learning from them. And so I'm really excited about that. And then uh, for me, like if I go on to the website and, and read what's there, is there a way to get input from individuals? Uh, are you looking to gather information from a whole bunch of sources? Uh, that come to you or just curious about that? Absolutely. So you can go on there. You can go on our public input space and actually talk about what reforms are happening. If we have questions or comments, we'll answer those. Um, what was the second part of your question? Oh, I guess in terms of uh, input from other sources, besides you going out and getting the information, gathering the information, uh, are you wanting people to come to you with information like, uh, you know, word on the street or just sources? Are right. you gathering information that way as well? The goal is supposed to be a Wikipedia style page, right? So it is going to be crowdsourced. People can come in, edit, change, edit. Um, it'll be, it won't be completely open to the public. It'll be people who work in the reform space that are able to do this, um, but it's still going to be crowdsourced. So it's a really cool way for, you know, we recognize that there's no way that we could possibly know every single reform that's happening across the nation, um, just as a nonprofit or being siloed in California. So it's really important to get that input from others. Okay. And then for James, uh, out of your office, uh, there's a whole bunch of new projects you have. And I was really interested in uh, a particular one of them, but it sounds like there's more than one. So what are you working on right now in terms of the increasing voter turnout and uh, election streamlining? So I think for the short term, looking at uh, November, one project we completed uh, last week uh, is what we're calling the California Students uh, Vote Project. 
and uh, the big thrust of it is at the college level. And it goes to some of the experiences I had uh, at UC Davis trying to register students to vote. Um, you know, I was registering students to vote back in 2004, right up to the, for the presidential election, and you try to work with the administration to go to the dorms, to get into the classrooms, or to stand in high traffic areas and, and register students to vote. And the, the college administration was generally unfriendly, if not discouraging, and they sort of viewed voter registration as some sort of soliciting or commercial activity. And that really stuck with me. And you know, over the past you know, 10 years, you, you see and you hear from other students that experience the same thing across all the different segments, the community colleges, the, the CSUs, and the UCs. And so the, you know, when we came in this year, we came in last year, we looked at, okay, what, what can we do to improve uh, that relationship on the campus level? And UC Santa Barbara had sort of set an example uh, in 2008, 2012, and even as recently as this past primary in terms of uh, getting their students registered and getting them out to vote. And they had essentially created at the campus level um, an MOU between the administration and the student government on access, on uh, time in the dorms, on places that they can go and register students, on encouraging professors to talk about voter registration and voting in the classroom. Um, as well as using the administration's ability to send out campus-wide emails and to post information on the campus websites. So every time you go to register for a class or you go to check your, your, your class uh, materials, uh, there'd be a reminder or a date. Uh, so we set about to trying to replicate that on all the campuses. And I think there's you know, 150 something campuses in California, so going campus to campus would be a difficult task. So uh, Secretary Padilla met with um, each of the executives from the UC, CSU, and uh, community colleges and got them to commit to signing an MOU at the executive level uh, based on the Santa Barbara model of collaboration uh, to get students to vote. And so uh, last week, uh, the week before, the Board of Regents, the CSU trustees, and the Board of Governors for the community colleges all signed on to doing this MOU together, and uh, we'll be rolling that out in the coming months. So in reaction to that, we put together a website with uh, resources for students on how they can um, go out and, and do voter registration campaigns. We sample emails, so, sample social media tweets uh, that they can use on the, at the campus level. And we'll be starting to follow up campus by campus to make sure each campus is implementing this, this MOU. And we've partnered with uh, the different student government associations, uh, CalPERG, uh, Asians Americans Advancing Justice, um, Naleo, the National Association for Latino Elected Officials, to, to get this done. And we're really excited. We think um, you know, we can have an impact on, on getting 18 and 24 olds out to vote, which we know from previous cycles have extremely dismal turnout. I think in 2014, it was 8.2% 18 and 24 year olds turned out to vote. So will this be, uh, will this get to gear for this election or are you looking more for 2018, 2020? No, we'll, we're gearing up for this election. So our partners are, you know, as we speak at the campus level, gearing this up uh, and, and looking to implement it campus by campus. And um, the secretary himself will be promoting it at, at campus tours he'll be doing between now and, and the election day. And really, you know, we have limited resources at the Secretary of State's office, so we have to amplify our you know, our, our abilities by working and partnering with uh, these organizations and the administration at the college level. Public-private public partnership. Yeah. Um, 
and then that was that was the big one. I know that was the brand new one, but um, was there another um, project that's I'm blanking on that you were also working on simultaneously that's pretty new? Sure. So uh, the, we had a bill signed into law last year um, known as Automatic Voter Registration or the New Motor Voter Law, uh, and it builds on a federal law from 20 years ago. Uh, when Bill Clinton ran for president for the first time, he campaigned on Motor Voter, which was uh, let's provide voter registration opportunities at the DMV. Let's provide paper forms and people go to get their driver's license or state ID. And the philosophy was, right, is that we all have a right to vote. And, but voter registration is a construct of government to, you know, to sort of control who's able to vote. And so if voter registration is in the government interest, then it should be a burden on the government to register people to vote. So requiring the DMV, requiring other state agencies to uh, register uh, citizens to vote uh, became federal law 20 years ago. Uh, and California wasn't implemented so well. Uh, our governor at the time, uh, Pete Wilson, fought implementation to the very end. Uh, and so, you know, it, it didn't get off to a good start in California. But last year, we uh, introduced a bill to take motor voter the next step, which is the old motor voter relied on paper forms. You fill out a paper form, the DMV mails it to the county, the county type it, types it into the uh, computer system. But that was based on a 20-year-old process. We now have IT. We have the ability to move information electronically from space to space. So why don't we use some commonly used IT infrastructure to register folks to vote that we know are eligible? Because guess what? When you go to the DMV, you're providing your name, your address, your date of birth, and your social security number. Everything you need to know to register to vote. So we flipped it to if we know you're eligible to vote, we're going to register you to vote unless you opt out because you have a right to free speech. You don't have to register to vote if you don't want to. So we flipped the question on its head. Instead of the DMV asking someone if they want to register to vote, we register them to vote if they're eligible and then ask them, hey, if you want to opt out, you can opt out. And Oregon uh, implemented this law uh, at the beginning of 2015, and their voter registrations from their DMV per month went up 200%. Uh, so we hope to get that out and that kind of impact in California and it's set to launch in 2017, the summer of 2017. So it won't have an impact on this election, uh, but in future cycles we hope it'll have a, a big impact. Okay. And then Paul, I, I thought your most recent endeavor, at least from what I saw when I Googled you, was um, your writing for Capital Weekly, the California 120 or CA 120 column. So I've been, I've been reading them and and learning a lot actually about um, voter thoughts and actions for this election. So I wanted to ask you, you know, since you've been writing that in the beginning of January, what has really struck you or what you've noticed uh, about um, elections here in the state? And, you know, if because it is a presidential election, what uh, in the past nine months have you really have been some thoughts that struck you as interesting about this election? Yeah, so, um, you know, earlier this year I approached Capital Weekly and said, hey, I'm willing to write like a regular thing if you want to do it on elections and to dig into the kind of stuff that would not necessarily be written by mainstream media, um, not to write up stuff that is like pure academia, but write up stuff that's kind of practical uh, campaign data, 
uh, knowledge and, and kind of do some stories that would hopefully enlighten people as to how campaigns are run um, and help people kind of think about this world a little bit differently. Um, you know, the one of the driving things about it and one of the first articles that I wrote uh, was about how data is used in campaigns, both what people kind of envision data to mean as they're going into a campaign, what they actually do during the campaign, and then at the end, like, what actual outcomes are. And a lot of times these three buckets kind of just don't connect. Uh, one of the things I really wanted to talk about early on was this idea of like modeling. At the national level, especially after 2008, um, everybody got all high on models. Like, I don't know what it is, but I need a model. And, and it created, especially in California, this, this thing where campaigns are like, you know, you could be running for school board and you'd say, I need to create a model. I want to do what Obama did. And uh, what's really funny about it is you had this kind of an arc. At the beginning of the campaign, everybody wanted to do a model about everything. They want to model who voted for this candidate last time. They want to model who's likely to have to be a veteran. They want to model who's likely to vote down ticket. They want to model who's likely to uh, you know, vote earlier, vote late, and these other things, and do all this modeling. Then at the end, they're like, just give me the goddamn file. Like, you know, at the end, they're just like, give me more voters. Like, at the end, they just don't, like, all that smart stuff kind of goes out the window, and they're just, give me people who voted three of the last four elections that are Democrats. And it, they kind of, like, revert back to, like, in a practical sense, a lot of this modeling is, a lot of this modeling is stuff you think about in the year leading up to your race. But in the last five weeks of your election, you're like, I, I don't, I'm not getting any sleep. I just need to get the data out. I just need to get my mail out. I just need to walk more precincts and so on. The other thing that's lost in a lot of the data stuff is the simple fact that none of the data, fancy data stuff matters if you're not doing the basics well. And in fact, the one thing that 08 Obama proved and that gets lost by most people who study it is that 08 Obama did the basics well. You can think of the four of us in this panel as being different components of the campaign, okay? You've got the fundraising contact to voters. You've got the grassroots contact to voters. You've got the mailing that's going out to voters. You've got the pollster that's reaching out to voters. Now in most campaigns, even the highest funded campaigns in this state right now, those four pieces don't, don't ever talk. They never talk. Somebody gets contacted by a fundraiser, that doesn't get flagged on the precinct walk kit that's going out with the volunteers on Saturday. And the fact that somebody is in a precinct walk said, hell no, I'm not voting for that person, never gets communicated to the mail file that's mailing that person 17 goddamn mailers at 70 cents a piece because the mail file doesn't know what the walk thing knew. And the polling is being done with some other data set with the people who are being flagged as uh, likely voters in the polling is a different construct than the likely voters that are being contacted in the walk in the mail. And the fundraiser database isn't connected with any of these three things. Somebody could donate to a campaign and not even be getting the mailers or be getting precinct walked. 
and maybe that's and, and so this this lack of like connectivity between the data sets and the ability to just do the basics right is what Obama was able to do. Um, and so being able to do the California 120 uh, column, it, it's essentially my vehicle kind of on, in an entrepreneurial way to get out of just like sitting at my computer doing polling samples all day long and doing the data and be able to start to communicate with people about these the uh, kind of a deeper look at data, some of the nuances, and some of what is, you know, thinking forward about uh, campaigns, whether it's, you know, we're doing polling. Capital Weekly's doing polling. But we're not doing poll, we're doing polling right now, and there's two polls out in the field right now on the state ballot measures. I don't give a shit what they say. In the end, I don't care if it says things are gonna pass or fail. I've got two polls out right now, we're doing a third. The first poll, asks all 17 ballot measures in a row. And for each one, you get to ask the question if you're gonna vote for that measure or say you want more information, get a question, get more information, and then vote. The second one clusters them. It puts two, both death penalty measures together. It puts both plastic bag measures together. It puts tax measures together. And the third one is just gonna be the summaries, like a one sentence on each, and check boxes for all of them. So what I want to learn from that is a way to communicate through an article that we'll do in a week or so that the methodology of how you ask questions in a poll is sometimes as important as anything else. And you, it, how hard it is, I did an article about how hard it is to predict uh, vote outcomes from polling when a polling mechanism is so different than voting. You know, when, uh, and, and so kind of getting into that interesting stuff uh, and trying to inform, I mean, nobody noticed this. I didn't see the B write this. I didn't see anybody else mention this. The field poll that came out that, that just, everybody wrote their field poll articles and nobody made note of the fact that in the little text, the field poll did their first poll online. This poll was an online poll. They've been doing telephone polls since the beginning of the field poll, and this is the first time they've actually done it online. And why did they do their first poll online? Because they saw what we did with Capital Weekly, doing online polls driven by voter files and emails. So it's trying to inform and, and provide interesting new things for kind of the political class and write some things that mainstream media is not gonna write and be more kind of practical than the, what the academic stuff is writing. So I was going to ask about polling. Does it matter anymore uh, now that everyone's got a cell phone and you're not allowed to to call that way? Uh, or does it, and, you know, polls have ex been, you know, they've been polling since last year. Um, are those relevant? I mean, what, how does polling, how is polling shifting now? How should it be changing so that it matters if it's, if, if it's not as, um. Yeah. So first off, one of the greatest critiques of modern polling is the fact, and it's something that a lot of people can understand, so they jump to it, and it's, you know, clearly more people are on cell phones than landlines. I haven't had a landline since 1997. And uh, so if you're going to get me on a poll, you have to call my cell phone. Does that mean you can't call cell phones? No. But it makes polling more expensive. And so a lot of pollsters for a long time didn't want to call cell phones because cell phones were more expensive. Um, now we're actually having a little bit of an opposite effect. 
The opposite effect is a lot of campaigns are forcing pollsters to meet a quota on cell phones. And one of the weird anomalies about our huge surge in voter registration is that if you put a, if if you look at who has a cell phone on the voter file, you're going to end up with um, I want to say 40% of the cell phones on the voter file are people who've registered since January. Think about that. 40% of the voters with cell phones that are on the voter file are people who've registered since January. That means they're younger. That means that they uh, might be different because for some reason they've re-registered. They're not, you know, they're more transient. I don't know what. But it skews the voter sample. But Polling also is not just like a singular thing. Polling is used for different, uh, in different ways. The public polling, like the field poll, is trying to give a snapshot in time of where a ballot measure or a campaign is. Uh, campaigns also do tracking polls, where like the USC poll, which is a public poll and a tracking poll, where every day they're in the field, 300 more respondents, 300 more respondents, 300 more respondents every day through the election day, trying to track movements in, uh, in a group. Uh, there's polling that's done uh, for modeling. So as an example, our polling that we did for Capital Weekly, not by mistake, got 43,000 responses. We did a poll. You see a poll and it says N of 300, meaning 300 people responded to this poll, and this is a poll of 300 people that took the questionnaire. I've got a poll that's 43,000. And did I give a shit what it said about who was going to vote one way or the other on the president's race, presidential race? No. What I cared about is there was this question there about what you felt about privacy of data by Facebook and Google. What I had in there was a question about what you thought about um, uh, DUI breathalyzer tests for first-time offenders. What I cared about is there was questions about uh, Uber versus taxis. And because that data at huge data sets can be used for modeling and for building bigger data sets. So polling is not just that singular horse race who's winning one way or the other. It's useful for a lot of different things. It is facing challenges in changes to how you get those responses and how you um, contact voters, whether it's landlines, which is kind of the older end of the voter spectrum, or if it's cell phones, uh, which is expensive and has its own complications, or if it's online, either voter-driven, voter-file-driven emails to take surveys like SurveyMonkey does, or panels, which are like people who agree for like a $5 Starbucks card to take a questionnaire. So, it's having problems in terms of methodology, um, yeah, but it's also, I think this is a, a kind of a, a, a renaissance period in terms of polling because people are realizing the benefit of survey work to so many other parts of campaigns. And then there's a whole commercial application to it too. And then I was also gonna ask about you know social media. That's a new, well, it seems like uh, every election there is more and more uh, on social media uh, 
seems like Donald Trump runs his campaign on Twitter. Uh, I know Facebook had a big drive to increase voter registration. So for you guys, based on what, what you cover um, on your day job, how has social media, in your point of, in your view, affected what you're working on in terms of gathering information, voters, uh, campaign strategy, um, uh, voters' points of views? Want to start? So the, the Facebook um, voter registration surge. So right before the primary, uh, and then just last Friday, Facebook uh, posted a link to the national sort of clearinghouse for registering a vote. Uh, it wasn't directly to California, but if you go to that federal website, it sends you down to California. Uh, in right before the primary, it was roughly, I think, 200,000 people registered to vote or updated their registrations right before the primary. And then last Friday through this Monday, it was about, I think, 170,000 people registered to vote or updated their registration. So to put that in perspective, uh, I was talking to someone who gets paid to go door to door and, and knock and talk to voters and try to get them registered to vote. And they had been bragging about the, the success they had been doing, I think, for over the past 10 years. And you know, every, leading up to every election cycle, they're out, they're knocking on doors in communities that are underrepresented, trying to get them registered, and they spend a lot on staff time. I'm, I'm sure over 10 years they spent you know, millions and millions of dollars going door to door. And they bragged that they registered over those 10 years 170,000 people. So social media has taken voter registration to another level, where in one day, just yesterday on National Voter Registration Day, 100,000 people registered to vote uh, through online registration. In California. In California. And so it's, it's easy, it's, it's convenient, and uh, it's really changing registration going forward because not only is, is there a challenge of registering to vote for the first time, it's also the challenge of making sure you update your registration every time you move. And so online is making it easy and convenient, and you can just see that uh, in the surge uh, this year. And one of the things I'm sure Paul will bring up, but we've also seen too, is at in certain events drive people to online registration. Maybe it's the presidential debate, maybe it's uh, Super Tuesday, but when there's major events you can see people going online to to register to vote and you know I'm sure folks will come up with some analysis about you know what motivates people uh, based on these events but it's it's interesting to see that in real time and the power online registration has. I think for, for us at California Forward, we have a different perspective, and it's not so much on campaigns or candidates as much as it's shifting policy, right, the big picture stuff. And for us, social media has been such a powerful tool to get people thinking about what are the policy things that are happening and how can we change them and what are, how, how do these different elements interrelate. Um, and so I have one project in particular that I work on part-time, um, and it's called the Political Reform Act Revision Project. Um, and so we actually partnered with a state agency called the Fair Political Practices Commission, um, and which is you know just a fantastic thing to have those public-private partnerships. Um, and what we do for them is we actually facilitate public comment in the process. So what they're doing, there's a law called the Political Reform Act, which kind of governs how elected officials and others um, 
disclose their campaign finance stuff and they deal with money in politics and gifts that are coming in. Um, so holding these elected officials accountable. Um, and so what they found was over the course of 40 years, this law had been changed so much that it doesn't make sense anymore. It's like a monster. There are things that don't relate to one another anymore. Um, and so what we did, we did was we came in and we said, hey, can we help you fix this? And so what we did is we partnered with two law schools and we've rewritten the act in plain language so that there's not legalese in there and there's not sections that don't relate to anything anymore. Um, and a big component of this process that really instills the trust back in to the agency and in governance is there's a really big political comment component to this where people can come in and give their input and make sure that things aren't getting changed around. Um, and we're facilitating that process using social media a lot of the time. So we're connecting to people directly and saying, hey, Hey, go on our website, we're on our Facebook page, we're on our Twitter, um, where we invite people to actually submit the entire act uh, with their red line edits so that we can go through it. Um, and so that's been a really big component of that uh, and using social media as we do um, public outreach and we've gone around the state and talked about it as well. So that's one way that we use social media to connect with the people. The um, social media is definitely changing campaigns and how campaigns are run and how money is spent in campaigns. Um, the big, the big picture of this is that, well, I, I'm so old, I remember the 1996, uh, presidential election and the first time that a candidate in an ad put their web address on their ad. It was Clinton campaign, I guess, uh, um, and it was just like, wow moment, like, oh my God, the web is real and campaigns are going to start using the internet. And, but for a long time, it basically stalled. It was like websites were, campaigns, campaigns had websites, and then campaigns would put, you know, just throw a bunch of garbage ads up on, uh, like, newspaper or something like Fresno Bee banner ads. And when I was running an independent expenditure committee, we got to the end of a campaign cycle. We had, like, $6,000 left over. It's like, I don't know. What are we going to do with this? I, just web ads. I don't know what it is. Just put it into web ads. And it was like lawn signs on the Internet. Right? It just basically nonsense and not strategic, not targeted, and just a waste of money, basically. There's been a real culture shift in the last uh, few years, and it's really coming to fruition in this election cycle more so than ever, in that instead of online and social looking like lawn signs, online and social is looking like mail. What you're able to do now is... I spend, when I'm not doing polling samples, I'm doing social media data files, we're able to send voter data to companies that will match to your cell phones. We're sending data to companies that will match to your Facebook pages. We're sending data to companies that will match to what cookies you have on your browsers to serve ads to you. So I'm riding my bike and listening to Pandora on the bike path and I hear the goddamn Prop 61 ads. And I'm like, fuck, I wish I hadn't put myself in that voter file. I mean, like, I need to start extracting myself out of uh, data stuff that we're sending to vendors. But campaigns are now able to target. So instead of going to the Fresno Bee and saying, vote for Kristen for assembly or something like that, they're able to target voters the same way that they target male. So that means a Latino voter that's a likely voter that their model says is persuaded by jobs can get one ad on Pandora or one ad in Facebook. And then a woman who's, uh, who's either a, a, 
uh, commercial databases said that they're a parent or we know that they're a homeowner and that they're white and that they live in a neighborhood that voted for Prop 8 can get an ad tailored to what is seen to persuade her in an election. And if it's a big statewide ballot measure on tobacco or if it's a state senate race or state assembly race, you can now target social in the same way that you target mail, which is essentially splitting up the electorate into component pieces based on if you need to turn them out or persuade them, what messages will turn them out or persuade them, and then feed information to them that's specific to them. That is a huge new thing in campaigns, and I know some big consultants are saying that they want their clients to be spending 35% of their budget on digital and social media. That's amazing, and it's actually intellectually justifiable because we're able to use this convergence of the voter file and what you're getting online to be able to target voters in a way that makes sense to where we can actually start to see social supplanting mail in its ability to target voters effectively. I got and one more observation I was thought about uh, is the challenge of the social media, especially for for an election official, that we saw this year, and that's um, the ability for you know the old adage of you know a lie can get halfway around the world before the truth puts its pants on, and you'd see bad information being tweeted out or you know posted on Facebook and shared and shared and shared. I'd see a celebrity with a million followers post really bad information that could disenfranchise someone who took it seriously. Don't take it, don't get a provisional ballot? Yeah. You see celebrities say, you know, don't accept the provisional ballot, and which would just, I'm not even going to go into that road right but essentially we have 10,000 followers of Secretary of State, and we're going up against, you know, celebrities with millions and millions of followers that are retweeting bad information, and how do we catch up to that, and how do we deal with that? I think it's a challenge we have to figure out going forward. And the other interesting part of that is, you know, we have a constant stream of social media on, on various aspects in terms of knowing your rights and deadlines and links and, and resources. And you would see people, you know, we, we had literally just posted something about, okay, you know, this is the deadline to register to vote. And then you scroll down just the next tweet, the tweet at us would say, hey, when's the deadline to register to vote? And people, I don't, I can't explain this behavior. I don't know if people literally want to show right up on their news feed at the exact right moment. They, they open up uh, Twitter or Facebook. But it's interesting that it's really hard to get simple information out on, on social media, even though it might be right there in front of the person. And we saw that constantly, this, this cycle. So it's, it's an interesting challenge for folks like uh, in the election administration. And also a, a brand new thing that happens this year, uh, happened this year within our state is the top two primary system. So I guess this is the first time we've had two candidates of the same party. Um, up there for senators. So I'm wondering for for you all, um, what's the effect that you've seen in terms of like voter confusion, I guess, when voting? Or uh, I think I read maybe in, in one of your columns, Paul, that there have been more same party challenges uh, than ever before. Uh, how campaigns are run, you know, how they market themselves. Just curious what, what the change for the primary system has, you've seen through what you've been doing. The open primary was passed in 2010. The intent of the open primary was to elect more moderates, largely. The people who funded it felt as though you could create these two uh, places, two points in the election cycle, the primary and the general, 
where there would be these pressures that would force candidates to talk to people from other parties, uh, to uh, moderate their messages, that it would kind of neuter the power of the political parties, and that uh, it would create you know, elections about ideas and not about partisan attacks and all this kind of stuff. None of that worked. It has not borne out. The, you can point to like certain votes in legislation are more moderate or not in the, in the last, after the last three election or two election cycles under the system. Uh, and there have been some research on that, but it's much more likely that the change in how the budget is passed has to do with moderation than the change in how the open primary has, um, has taken effect. The other thing about the open primary is there's just a lot of confusion about it, not just by voters, but also by the consultant class and common wisdom. One of the funniest common wisdoms when the open primary passed was that everybody was going to just run as an independent. And talk to Adam Gray. He had consultants left and right telling him that when he ran for the assembly, he should run as an independent. Anthony Adams ran as an independent. Chad Conant ran as an independent. Uh, there were 35 people running as independents in the first, uh, in 2012 election cycle, the first implementation of the new open primary, because people felt, I can be a Democrat. Everybody knows I'm a Democrat, but I don't have the anchor of the D on my ballot, and so maybe Republicans will vote for me. And maybe I can get people from across the aisle to support me. Maybe I can win independence, Nathan Fletcher, because I'm an independent. None of that really bore out. And so after that first election cycle, everybody said, oh, we're never going to run as independent again. Like, that's never going to be the thing. Um, parties, political parties, the endorsements of the Democratic and Republican Party actually got more important in the top two system than they were prior to the top two. Um, each election, I, each election has to be kind of judged on its own, on, on the basis of itself um, when campaign consultants go in and fight these uh, open primary elections. We did, this election cycle, see more uh, dem on dem generals than ever before. Largely because there was a competitive presidential race on the Democratic side, there was a cratering of turnout on the Republican side, particularly among Republicans under 45. There was a real kind of collapse of, of voter turnout. And as a result, a uh, place like where I grew up in Glendale, where when I was a teenager, we had a Republican assembly member, senator, and member of Congress, now had an election where the Republican didn't even make second place. The Republican came in third place in the assembly race. And we saw more incumbent Republicans get under 50% uh, than uh, we've ever seen before, and we saw more open primaries go dem on dem. We also saw the U.S. Senate race go dem on dem. That's all I'm going to say about that. But, there, but I, I had said in prior things I'd written about the open primary that what I really felt was necessary for voters to start to learn the open primary was for one of the big statewide elections to go dem on dem. Because in legislative and congressional races, there's a lot of evidence that voters weren't even realizing that they had two Democrats running for their assembly race, or two Democrats running for the state senate or, or congressional race. And it created these aberrations in uh, not only who would get elected, but also in kind of vote, voter behavior uh, uh, in these open primary runoffs. And I think there was a significant argument to be made that if a big statewide race went dem on dem, 
then voters would realize, wait, the U.S. Senate race is dem on dem. Oh, look at that assembly race. That assembly race is dem on, oh, look at my state Senate race. There's another one. And realize that this actually is happening. Because in the first two implementations of the open primary, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that voters were voting and never even realizing that one of the contests on their general election ballot went, was uh, Democrat versus Democrat or Republican versus Republican. And it had real impacts. Um, uh, Matt Harper probably wouldn't be in the assembly if it wasn't for, I think, voters not realizing that there were two Republicans on the ballot in that Orange County race. Um, Patty Lopez wouldn't be in the assembly if it wasn't for that. Uh, and um, Matthias, I believe, was a third one that was probably elected as a result of kind of voter confusion about in the open primary. So after the, the top two primary passed um, by the voters, there was an implementing law to deal with uh, the repercussions of the proposition. And part of that was to say that, okay, from governor on down, U.S. Senate governor on down, you're going to get every, every party and every candidate on your ballot. So when you went to go vote for Kamala Harris and or Loretta Sanchez, you saw Democrat, Republican, Green, Libertarian, everyone on your ballot, except for U.S. President, because federal case law says you can't dictate, you can't have an open, you can't require through state law an open primary. And so this, we passed a state law saying, okay, well, if you're a decline to state, independent voters, decline to state, you have to request your presidential ballot. And the 2012 was the first election that applied to, but there wasn't a dem-on-dem -dem race in the, in the 2012 presidential election, so there wasn't much paid, attention paid to that new law. Come this year, where there is a very intense dem-on-dem -dem primary election, uh, many voters were confused that they had to request this additional ballot or specifically request uh, when they went to the polling place. And then you have 58 counties that have a lot of freedom and local control on election administration uh, interpreting that law differently. And that's one of the challenges of the Secretary of State is making sure election law is implemented uh, uniformly. Uh, and so I think that there's a lot of stuff you saw in the news cycles this past primary was that confusion of having to request that extra ballot. And I think the other uh, you know, consequence of top two was the U.S. Senate race. You had 34 candidates for U.S. Senate. And that's because you're consolidating every party's candidate. And 34 candidates is hard to put on a ballot. And many counties are struggling. Do we do front and back? Do we do two pages? Like, what's the proper way to do this? And I'm, I'm curious. I haven't, I haven't seen much analysis on it. But to see how that affected voter choice and how many voters overvoted. Uh, you talk to county election officials, and you'd have you know, three columns of US Senate candidates, and people are filling a bubble here, and filling a bubble there, and filling a bubble here, even though it says just US Senate candidate choose one. So I think it's interesting to see how we go forward because that was just one statewide contest. Uh, in 2018, you're going to have many more statewide contests, and there could be 34 candidates for each statewide elected office. And you can only guess how long of a ballot that would be if you had to do that. So there's a lot of challenge, I think, ahead for top two and how it affects uh, election administration that we've just begun to see this, this election cycle. 
So, um, you know, I won't be long on this. Uh, we were one of the major proponents of the top two primary, and I think it's, <laughs> uh, but I think that we've seen that there have been consequences, both intended and unintended, and I think that you both went over them pretty well. Um, I think one of the other big things or challenges that came along with that, you'll have to remind me of the county because I can't remember, but there's also splitting races, right? There was a heavily democratic um, county that are that went in and they had so many Democrats running that they ended up with two Republicans as their choices So that's also a really big challenge is a challenge for campaigns the challenge for um, voter information, but also from our perspective it was how do you actually get a truly moderate candidate that reflects the views of the people, right? That was kind of like the goal for us in a lot of ways. And I think that we're starting to see um, that it may or may not have gone to that outcome. And one of the reasons why it hasn't really panned out is because the open primary works if we were to do a little game theory experiment here in this room. The open primary works when you have perfect information and when people can strategically vote, or they do strategically vote. And strategic voting uh, works great in a classroom. It works great if we were to bust out playing cards and understand game theory and, and come up with an experiment to prove that it works, it would work. Voters aren't rational when they vote. They're not game theorists. Just like when I go to, a, well, there's going to be a basketball arena here. When we go to a Kings game, we're not cheering rationally. We're not, if somebody said, hey, if the left side of the arena all cheers for the other team, then they're going to lose. They're not going to do it. They're going to cheer for their team. And when my mom votes, she doesn't think, she thinks, but she doesn't think, uh, I'm going to vote for this Republican because this Republican's more moderate and it's probably going to be a Republican who's going to represent me anyway so I can make an, have an impact in which Republican makes the runoff. So then I'm going to vote for this candidate who doesn't believe in my values because uh, I'm going to game the system to make sure that a more moderate gets elected. Um, and I mean, I could go on and on and talk about this, but there's also a real challenge for voters and even in a runoff between two Democrats or two Republicans and identifying who is the moderate. If you are a Republican in San Francisco and you're voting between the gay supervisor and the Bernie Sanders-backed supervisor, which one's the mod? Right? If you're a voter in Santa Monica and you're voting between the liberal environmentalist mayor of Santa Monica and the union-backed uh, LGBT activist uh, alternative, who's the moderate? And if you're a Democrat in Orange County and you're voting between the pro-life Republican Party chairman and the other pro-life Republican Party chairman, Republican Party, which one's the moderate? So there are challenges in this theory because it's really hard to apply in real world. I think one quick follow-up is in 2010, I, I managed uh, two campaigns, one in the primary and one in the general, for two very different Democratic um, some members. Uh, one was Kevin McCarty, who represents Sacramento and extremely liberal, probably on the far liberal end of the spectrum. And the other one was Allison Huber, who was uh, a swing seat. She was very moderate, uh, I think in the conventional term. 
And you know, we went out and we knocked on doors, you talked to voters, and a Democrat in Curtis Park is very different from a Democrat in Eldorado County, very different from a Democrat in Northern Stockton. And you, the, the candidates come from those communities for the most part, and they represent those views. And so it's really hard to, you know, a moderate in Sacramento is much different than a moderate in Orange County than Placer County. And so it's really hard to put out that all in a box and kind of divide it up between Dem and Reap uh, because it's, the state is very diverse, not only ethnically and, and, and uh, politically, but also, um, yeah, politically. So I was going to finish off. All right. So I do have some other questions, but uh, we have 30 minutes uh, before trivia starts where I'd like for you guys to get up to the mic and ask questions, and it's right there. And I know typically how it works is, uh, okay, people inch up, and then, like the last ten minutes, everyone lines up. So I understand. So I'm primed. But uh, okay. So before this gentleman asks this question, I have one that ties into what you guys were saying about uh, how we, as a state, are as voters right now in terms of conservative, uh, moderate, and liberal, and how it shifted. I guess maybe even in the past two years, four years since the last presidential election. Um, I would say personally, you know, on my Facebook page, everyone's preaching to the choir. Uh, it's a liberal bet. But my parents live or did live recently in uh, El Dorado County, uh, totally red. And I know there's Orange County. So I'm just wondering from what you've seen in the past two years, four years, has it shifted to more liberal in general, uh, more uh, states have gone really deep red. Other states have gone from deep blue to lighter blue. Um, just curious about what you see in your work in terms of specific regions of the state, state overall. So for starters, um, the driving force and change in our electorate is coming from the millennials. Uh, younger voters who are coming on to not only registering to vote for the first time, becoming eligible to vote, but re-registering, and they're going to be starting to enter a period where they're actually participating in more elections. Because just being eligible to vote is one thing. Being eligible and registered is another. Being registered and voting in the presidential race is another. But when they really start to become impactful is when they're registered and voting in all of the elections and voting down ballot. Um, those younger voters that are coming into the electorate, um, first off, they're more likely to be registering as an independent. There was a big kind of push of partisan voters registering in the primary season. Um, my expectation has been, and it's kind of bearing out, that post-primary we're going to have a lot more people registering that are independents. It's like they were drawn to the primary because they're partisans, but now you're seeing a lot more registration among independents. Uh, to the point where, uh, you know, independents will be vying for the largest pool of new registrants. And independents will be the second largest political organization. Right now, uh, in this state, uh, independents and others, including American independents, I won't give that speech, um, account for uh, the second largest part of the electorate. So uh, we are seeing a an electorate that is being influenced by that population that's more Latino, younger, and therefore in some metrics more liberal, more progressive. Um, but 
just like all other generations, they're going to kind of define what that means. Um, you might see uh, more progressive on fiscal issues. Um, you might see more progressive on, on social issues. But there might be some other areas like trade where, you know, or uh, jobs or um, education policy or things that matter in Sacramento uh, that you, you'll see these voters not necessarily fitting perfectly into the kind of buckets that we've created for them. I think for me, I'll speak kind of anecdotally and personally about this is that um, I, on a broad scale, I think you have, um, I think that Trump and Bernie are kind of two sides of the same coin, that you have um, a generation of people, maybe not just a generation, you have a ma mass of people across the nation that are generally dissatisfied with the political systems that exist, right? They're dissatisfied with candidates that exist, with the way that governance exists for them, and without really not feeling connected to that in some way. And so we're seeing, you know, these really kind of extreme candidates come in. And to me, that speaks to something broader is um, not just how I'm going to vote in 2016 election, presidential election, but how can we um, address these kind of deep-seated social issues that exist that are causing people to feel this way and feel disconnected from from the political system and from the establishment, I guess in some ways, are dissatisfied with it. Um, and I think that that kind of trickles down into how people are viewing parties in particular and voting. Um, a lot, just anecdotally and from you know my younger counterparts, being a millennial, um, I talk to a lot of my friends and they don't want to, I am, <laughs> and they don't want to connect to a party. Don't, they don't feel a value in that a lot of ways. Um, and for them, it's all about systems change and creating um, and really feeling connected to governance and the, and the social issues that they care about. So I think that's kind of the change that I've seen personally. So does that mean that um, maybe if you are a Democratic candidate here in California, it's not, you're not guaranteed um, to get your vote? Uh, or if you run as an independent, uh, you know, to get those independents, you're not guaranteed. It's kind of like they're, it's a more selective process that you're seeing, or maybe in the future? I think hard to say, um, but from, from my opinion, I think that if you can appeal to values, that's, that's what my generation is more connected to in a lot of ways, and especially with things like the top two primary where you're able to um, choose between these different parties without having to have that connection, then we might see some change in that way, but I don't think that we can really know that, or at least I can't. Maybe Paul's the better one to answer that question. Okay. All right. Do we have a question? All right. Yeah, I want to see what you think of uh, solving the problem of s vote splitting. So Caitlin brought it up, and I, I didn't hear you, uh, you two gentlemen, uh, speak to it. But Teddy Roosevelt, Ralph Nader, Ross Perot—they all split the vote. Um, if Biden would have ran and stayed in the election all the time, Bernie would have been the Democratic nominee. Uh, Trump, as one of the three outsiders, definitely benefited from vote splitting with 14 insiders. So uh, three strong Democrats running for state Senate in California. Chances are it'll be one Republican and one, 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 California, uh, one Democrat. So do you think it's an issue? And what's the solution? Ranked choice voting, approval voting, score voting, or keep it the same? Or revert, almost like, sounds like you were almost suggesting revert back to the old system of everyone having their own candidate. Um, so, you know, one of the realities of elections is that they're a little bit 
there, there's messiness and uh, the order in which you vote, the, um, the way that third party candidates can split voter preferences, it can end up with a situation where at the end of the day, you end up having a candidate that is not the choice of a majority of the population. Uh, maybe because who made it out of the primaries, maybe because of the way the general election is run. And um, I think that's natural. And every time you try to create a fix for it, you end up creating other problems. Um, you had a situation in Oakland where they tried to do ranked choice voting, and the first candidate to win out of the ranked choice voting election was one who most voters didn't even really know much about or have a lot of input on or a chance to really vet in a runoff uh, election or runoff system. Um, and two thoughts on this. One is I'm preferent, I, I do prefer the old election system where each party elected a candidate. I do believe in the two-party system as a way for uh, both parties having to kind of try to appeal to the median voter in order to try to capture the 50 plus one to win an election. I'm kind of partial to that. Um, I'm accepting of the open primary as, as an alternative system, especially maybe in California it makes more sense uh, in some ways. Um, uh, but what I don't like is constant tinkering with the system. I think at some point, like there was a situation in uh, Santa Clara at one point, uh, or um, I, I, I think it's actually North LA County, where um, there were a couple cities that were looking to go to ranked choice voting. And then there were other cities that were looking to go to um, districted elections versus at-large elections, and then changing their election dates, and doing all this stuff. And it came into a situation where you were changing so many things that voters were just getting confused. We have elections right now where you go into the precinct, you get your ballot for your statewide ballot, and then you have to walk across the room to get another ballot for your city council ballot, for your city council election. And you have these structures that were born out of probably good intentions, but then at the end of the day, just constantly making changes has a negative effect in terms of voters' understanding and being able to predict the system too. I think my comment on, on the vote splitting is, in terms of our work in the Secretary of State's office and what, I, what we're focused on, I think it's really difficult and you, you go into it blindly, not really knowing the unintended consequences when you try to change political philosophy to try to get more moderates or try to you know, evenly split districts. And I think we're focused, focused on more on making voting a better experience, on you know, helping more people get registered and voting. And so I think our work's more focused on the administration side, not necessarily trying to tinker with the philosophy and, and how and who uh, gets elected. I'll echo that. We, um, my work is more focused on kind of the administrative, especially in the elections, more the administrative piece of that. And um, I can speak kind of more broadly that one of one big concern that we have is kind of an inconsistency among counties, as as James has mentioned earlier, and how that plays out in the way that um, elections are ran, um, and that could have a piece of it as well. But um, when it comes to actual the vote splitting phenomena itself, I don't have a lot of insight. Uh, next up, but I'm wondering if anyone, I see everyone is getting their beers, and I've been wondering if someone can get me a Kolsch, <laughs> and I can pay you back three bucks at the end. Thank you. I'll pay you back three bucks. Thank you. All right, next question. Thank you, guys. Uh, I have kind of two broad questions that you've all touched upon, uh, some of the issues. 
One of which is uh, with with the such such uh, such an advancement in targeting people through the web and social media and everything. You you kind of mentioned it. There's there's so much uh, misinformation that gets out there. So in a way, it could be more damaging than people being you know instead of just not knowing something, they're gonna totally believe something that's BS. Uh, so I wonder if any of you have ideas on a check to that, how, how that could be counteracted to some degree. And the second one, which, which you mentioned, uh, really interesting, the crowdsourcing of the legislation. That's probably the most interesting thing I've heard in a long time. Uh, where do you see that going next? Uh, do you see it moving into the regulatory space, you know, with public comments, all of that? Do you see it um, maybe even making legislatures, assemblies, whatever, obsolete in the future? And and do you see, you know, any of you, do you see it the next level? Where does it go from here in terms of policy? I mean, people are going to be deciding things based on group knowledge, you know, very even minor things in their community and, and whatnot, you know, the abstract. So I tell you the first question about misinformation on you know, social media. And yeah, I mean, actually, I thought this would be a good one for you to talk about as well, in the sense that I actually believe that the targeting we do of campaign spending to go online, um, and the requirement for um, you know stating who the ad is coming from and that transparency is what will help uh, at least hold people accountable for when they're sending messages that are. Uh, trying to, in the social media sphere, misinform. And that might be one of the things about... Yeah, I think it's, it, you know, government always takes a while to adapt to st the new reality. And, you know, the new reality is people want information directly to them, texted to them, emailed to them, pop up right into their newsfeed. And we've seen in other states that have been a little more nimble in this. Uh, for example, I'll take, like, Denver, Colorado. Uh, if you vote by mail, uh, you can sign up for their, their information program where as soon as your, your ballot is dropped into the mail stream, you get a text. As soon as the, they know it's been delivered to your house, you get a text. If you haven't returned it with a certain amount of time, you get a text. Once it, it's mailed back and received by an election official and, and counted, you get a text. And they communicate with their voters this way directly. And so you, you know, we need to change the way we communicate and, and modernize that way instead of trying to you know, we, we send out this 224-page vote information guide, which is very useful. It's chock full of information, but not many people open it. And so is it, should we try to focus on people trying to open this, you know, phone book of information, or should we try a new way and a new approach of directly getting it into people's uh, electronic devices that they're looking at more often than uh, something they get in the mail? And I think we'll, you'll see us working to adopt that type of innovation in the coming years. Um. Absolutely, to both of those things. And then also, the way I think about it, that's not my biggest concern when I think about targeting, right? Because these campaigns are, are regulated. Um, and, and so, and actually in California more so than almost any other state. And so the concern is not as much of them sending out false information because they're afraid of that. Um, it's how, what are people, you and I, what, are the, what is the false information that we're sharing on social media and we're not fact-checking ourselves? Like that's more of a big concern to me personally. Um, and then my concern in terms of micro-targeting like what Paul does is um, we are missing, it, the more 
technology increases in using micro-targeting, the more, the more of the population that we're actually missing in terms of getting out the information to campaigns, right? If you're only targeting people who've, you know, voted the last 505 primaries and they live in this district and they have this kind of background, there's all these people that have never voted before that are never getting contacted by campaigns and they're never going out and they're typically in underserved communities and all this stuff. So it's like, what are we actually, we're doing, it, we're doing good for our campaigns and getting to the right people, but we're not doing enough to actually get out the vote for people who don't vote currently. And that's my big concern in terms of micro-targeting. So to your question of crowdsourcing of information, it's, um, I'm not sure exactly what you meant by crowdsourcing legislation because that's not, that's not what the project is. Um, what it is is working with an agency to adapt public comment into law. So I guess in some ways that it is right, um, but also the discussion of what goes into that law is very much still up to the agency and not even, you know, we're, we're playing a very facilitatory role in that. Um, but I think it is an interesting idea that you have, it's not very often that you have a state agency or the legislature that's really win willing to, I mean, you'll have a public hearing process where people can go up and speak at a microphone and they're like, okay, thanks. Um, but how much does that really actually go into the law versus um, this process, which really seems to engage people more. Um, so that is exciting. Uh, what do I see for the future? Maybe it'll work out really well. Maybe you'll see more state agencies willing, being willing to partner with nonprofits and other organizations to do stuff like that. Do I think it'll happen in the legislature? I would be very surprised. <laughs> but that doesn't mean it's not possible. I think the other quick challenge, too, and uh, follow-up is the uniqueness of California in terms of the diversity of our population and the number of voters that their primary language is something other than English. Uh, and so we've been trying to address that uh, in our agency. And one of the things we launched this year was we have a, a campaign finance uh, database where we can look up uh, and search you know, who's spending money on what candidate and what uh, propositions. And we launched it in Spanish uh, to try to reach the voters that don't necessarily uh, consume information in English and might be more susceptible to misinformation. And so that's one of the, another endeavor we're working on. Next question. Uh, thank you. Uh, first off, I'd like to say thanks to the panel and uh, you, the moderator, as well. I've been learning a ton. Um, but uh, I feel like I've seen more advertising on social media, especially from Gavin Newsom, than I actually expected to see this early on. And um, he looks great. Um, no, no, comp no, uh, no insult there. But um, I'm wondering, you know, since there is so much surveying being done, you know, perhaps even more than we'll see in two more years, um, what, if any, insights have you guys seen into uh, the challenges he might face in two years? Potential challengers, the splitting of the electorate that maybe uh, Governor Brown didn't have to face? And, um, and I guess furthermore, uh, what role this sort of open primary new electoral system might make in his run in a race where people are paying more attention, arguably, than any other state election and that... Uh, the kind of gamesmanship of the vote might actually happen more. Thank you. Well, I think the interesting thing to look at in California politics in the coming years is there's been a lot of strong people on the bench, so to speak. You know, you have you had Jerry Brown, Feinstein, Boxer, Lockyer. You had a lot of folks that have been in California politics for many, many, many years. And as, the, as they retire and, and, and leave politics, there's this, you know, wealth of, of talent uh, folks are going to run for office, and you're seeing it with the governor's race. I mean, you, you mentioned Newsom, but there's a lot of other folks whose names are out there that are positioning themselves uh, to do that. And, you know, is, is the social media campaign uh, effective? You know, I don't know. 
seeing a, a Facebook Live chat every two hours might be too much. <laughs> so I think you know can, uh, candidates are are moving to adjust and figure out the the right way to use social media. I think that's what you're seeing in these sort of fits and starts and growing pains. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how they do use that to sort of outmaneuver. I mean, you have Tom Steyer, who's running commercials about himself about climate change, uh, in a traditional sense, right? TV ads uh, and online. Um, and he's he's not running for governor, but a lot of people assume he is. And so he's promoting himself through uh, a policy agenda rather than as a candidate. It's, a, it's an interesting way to do it. Well, you know, you've got, uh, first off, it's kind of amazing that of this tier of candidates that we know are looking to run for governor in 2018, or maybe run for the U.S. Senate in 2018 if Feinstein leaves, that only one of those actually got into the U.S. Senate race this cycle. You know, there was a lot of speculation early on that that would be a frenzied, you know, from this this level of challengers kind of going into that race. And it's maybe the last time that we'll see, at least in the short term, uh, a race that's, you know, that only has like one of those kind of top tier statewide uh, officers running for it. So you're going to have you have a governor's race where three of the candidates that are potentially running for governor are on ads uh, TV uh, or print uh, going out this election cycle. So it's kind of amazing. And then on, t on top of that, you have other very legitimate, strong candidates with statewide election experience potentially running. I think 2018 is going to be an incredible year for those of us who watch politics. It might not be as, it's definitely not going to be as interesting to voters as uh, this election we have right now. Um, we're also going to see an implementation, a greater implementation of uh, voter registration by 2018. So I think by the 2018 election cycle, we'll have 20 million voters in this state, which is going to be a big uh, a change uh, through the work that uh, has been done on changing DMV registration. Um, and then uh, we're also seeing, you know, people always complain about, you know, Christmas is coming earlier, like the... You know, Starbucks has the Christmas lattes coming before Halloween now. Um, and that's how our elections are. It's like we haven't even gotten through this election and we're already, if you don't know it or you know it or not, we are in the 2018 governor's race cycle right now. I had a question about that because typically a midterm election, right, gets fewer voters. I know we, we're going to be voting, running for governor, but is there a concern about, we'll have 20 million voters, but will 20 million of them go to the polls? How do you get them, especially with the younger yeah. vote that you're trying so hard to get? I'll be frank here. One of the stupidest arguments against uh, expanding voter registration in California was this concern about the denominator. Essentially... If our turnout rate in California is 46% in an election with 18 million voters, and you grow it to 24 million voters, then all of a sudden our voter turnout rate is going to get lower. We're get, it's going to look like voter turnout is going down as we expand the number of people registered to vote. Um, the gubernatorial race would be a lot lower turnout. However, a lot of the voters, I'd say 90% of the voters who are going to be voting in the governor's race in 2018, are paying attention to elections now. And it's, it sounds on one hand like, this is a stupid time to be promoting your governor's race because you're gonna get so crowded out by all this other stuff. But it's a great time to be promoting your governor's race because everybody's paying attention to politics. 
way more, they're paying attention to politics way more right now than they will be in 72 days or, or 100 days or 200 days. They're paying way more attention to politics right now than they're going to be paying uh, attention to the governor's race in two years. So it's kind of like strike while the iron's hot. These people who are voting now, they're going to be vo a lot of them are going to be voting in the 2018 race. Next question. Uh, hey, first of all, I'd like to hear Paul commit right now to some sort of public humiliation if two Democrats uh, make the governor's race in 2018. So Paul, I'm not any making sort any bets. Pledge you want to make? Um, so uh, 17 initiatives uh, on the ballot this year. Paul, you mentioned stuff to sort of target ads to people who might especially care about pot legalization or the death penalty or whatever it is for the rest of the initiatives, particularly given that most people are not going to open that 250-page voter guide and read it, are you assuming that people are going to vote the one ad they saw, they're going to vote based on that as their knowledge base for an initiative? I mean, under the assumption that people maybe know about three of them and the other 14 they go in with zero information, are you assuming they're going to skip them? What are they going to make those decisions based on? I think um, just more broadly, uh, there's a lot of concern about ballot fatigue, right? So 17 initiatives, maybe you know about a few of them, you're going to be like, why? And I think, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, people have a tendency to vote no as a default anyway, especially if they don't know about it. Um, and so you're, I think you'll see, I'll see, we'll see a lot of fatigue. That's what I think, um, unless we find a way to get people really educated on it and they want to be educated. And that's why I implore you, if you haven't already, please go read the haikus of every proposition on the ballot. I will send it to you. <laughs> And it's <laughs> amazing. Wait, where where are the haikus? What's Google Damien Carroll uh, haikus ballot measures? Okay. So the other part of the of the seventeen ballot measures statewide is many counties, depending on what city you're in, like San Francisco or San Diego, are going to have two dozen local measures in on top of the seventeen statewide. Uh, and there is going to be significant ballot fatigue. I don't know how you run a campaign if you're number 21 in the middle of that pact. How do you get people to go all the way down? Because, you know, it's like a, you know, our old hist you know, history test. If you don't know the answer, you might as well skip it. And so if people will know some of the propositions, some of them they won't. Um, but I think there's going to be some, a lot of ballot fatigue when you go down there. And I will tee up. Sam's probably going to kill me for doing it. But... We're working on something to make it easy for voters to digest very quickly each of the ballot measures. A little more than a haiku, but uh, we're working on something. Um, first off, there's a lot of like the sky is falling kind of stuff going on, in part because the ballot measure thing is so, the, the booklet's so huge, and there's 17 ballot measures. But this is not the most ballot measures that we've seen on the ballot at one time in California, for one. For two, we have moved from having ballot measures on the primary and the general to just the general. In the past, go back historically the last 25 years, the average number of ballot measures on a ballot was eight and a half. You double that to one election, 17. We have, in this election cycle, the average number of ballot measures. They've just been both moved to the general election. Um, we, one of the things that I do think about when I think about the, about the number of ballot measures, whether it's this year or in past years that we've had, is that it is very hard for normal people to digest. And uh, whether they get information from the one or two ads they hear about the ballot measures that matter to them or that they can understand that kind of easily digestible, 
um, or whether they're actually going by what it reads on the uh, ballot title and summary as they're actually voting. A lot of work goes into ballot title and summary, and not for, uh, you know, not just because the lawyers like to make a lot of hourly uh, billing on uh, doing ballot measures, but ballot and title and summary is the most important piece of the puzzle for the success or failure because a lot of the information that voters are getting is what they actually are voting on when they see the ballot measure. One of the shortcomings, I think, of a lot of what I've seen in advertising on some of these ballot measures is like, I know Prop 61 because it's in my Pandora ad in my radio, you know, when I'm listening. Prop 61, Prop 61. Something about Prop 61. But how much am I going to relate what I heard in that ad to actually, when I actually read the summary and read the description of the ballot measure that is, uh, you know, before me when I'm actually voting? Two things that I've seen a lot of, down ticket, people stop voting. Except maybe they'll find that pot measure or the one thing that they care about. Um, down ticket, a lot of people start just voting no. Another thing that I think that's very interesting is, and I haven't released this yet, but we've been doing polling on the ballot measures. We actually took the two plastic bag ballot measures that those of us in the room know are ballot measures that are against each other. If you vote for one ballot measure, you're voting to kill the other ballot measure. Yet voters are voting yes on both of them. You'll have the same people, big majorities, voting yes on the ballot measure that's the poison pill for the other ballot measure that they also voted yes on. So voter confusion around these things is a, is a big deal. Can I ask a follow-up? Sorry. Uh, so you mentioned pot, Prop 64. It's what, like 10 or 11 down the ballot? Do you think the fact that it's that low down or indeed any of them that are that far down hurts their chances just because people have to get through a dozen first to get there? So I did an analysis that essentially said um, for every step down the ballot, you get an additional 1% of drop-off. So, you know, essentially 17% of voters aren't going to vote on the last ballot measure. You also get a half point more of no. So if you're the 16th ballot measure, you're starting at eight points behind. And it's hard for a poll to determine that. It's hard for you in a poll to ask, okay, now I'm going to ask you this ballot measure. Do you want to vote no just because you're sick of me? You know, okay, I'm going to vote another one. Do you want to stop voting? You know, I'm going to vote. Here's another one. Do you want to just vote no? Just say fuck it? Like, <laughs> vote no? Like, it's hard to capture this in polling. But when you look at analysis of voting patterns, you see this trending. Maybe it's only a quarter percentage point per measure. Maybe it's a half percentage point per measure, but essentially like a gravitational force to vote no as you get down the ballot. If the, uh, this is my little prediction, I'm not going to run anywhere naked, but the, if the plastic bag referendum is shown to be winning, meaning the yes is passing by less than 10 points, I think it fails because of this downward effect, that at the end of the ballot, they're just going to go like, no, 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 and that that's going to have a negative impact on those late ballot measures. And by voting no on the uh, plastic bag ban, you're actually voting with the plastic bag industry. Is there any thought or discussion about limiting the number of ballots, uh, uh, ballot initiatives, or is it just democracy at its finest? Um, because of this ballot fatigue? I think you'd have a, a hard time getting a, a law like that 
past, given how many how much money is spent on initiatives every cycle. And you know, again, the unintended consequence of reform, we pushed all these measures to uh, November because more people vote in November, and so we thought it would be better for more people to vote on these initiatives. Um, but now you have the unintended consequence of having this huge amount of measures that maybe a lot of people won't vote on. But I think also you might see that it's more expensive to qualify these measures on a ballot because what we saw this cycle is leading up to the deadline to submit your signatures, it was really hard to find signature gatherers. And so the campaigns kept kind of inching up the amount they're paying per signature where the more wealthy campaigns were able to do that, the not less wealthy campaigns were not. And so I think the unintended consequence uh, of all this is more expensive campaigns and but less people voting on them even though we've moved them to um, a higher turnout election so limiting them I, I just uh, I don't think that's a viable practical solution that would get passed yeah and just building upon that is that is the trivia starting because I'll, I'll join in um, <laughs> yeah, me too but just building upon that I think we're in you know a dilemma kind of with that we you have a lot of people on the administrative side and the reform side like what we do that are like okay well maybe maybe the solution is we need to put more things on the same ballot so people can they can actually vote and they're not going to have you know they're not going to like five different elections it's not going to happen whereas and then you have an election like this where there are so many ballot measures or there's so much happening that people are fatigued or that it's too much and so i don't think that we actually really know the solution um, but I do think it, that it's something that people are toying with back and forth. Well, and there you go, I'm trying to get more policy and upon some ballot initiatives. But to let you all guys go for trivia or whatever you're doing, I just had one last quick question before we wrap it up. Uh, just a personal interest. Uh, do Republicans, will they ever have a chance again in California? Uh, just quickly. My dad wants to know. He's a Republican. The answer is absolutely yes. And the, one of the facts that's not really paid much attention to is that yes, you have a rising number of independent voters and you have kind of a shrinking uh, of the Republican, par Republican Party in California. However, Republicans vote at higher rates than uh, progressive independents and higher rates than Democrats. So especially in a low turnout race, like a gubernatorial race, you're going to have uh, Republicans outperforming and independent voters that vote Republican outperforming the more progressive majority of voters in California. Um, that and our nation's history is littered with examples of uh, political parties and movements getting a little bit too far ahead of themselves, others shrinking and realizing that they need to expand their base and to, to capture issues that are more, uh, you know, uh, allow them to build their, build their party. So, yeah, I think that a two-party system still alive and strong, uh, an eight-point switch one way or the other could totally change that question. I think if you do, uh, it wouldn't be the Republican Party that we know today. Um, you know, there are millennial Republicans, and they are much different from their older uh, Republicans. And if, if they become the, the Republican Party of the future, they might start attracting voters again in California. Um, so I think in the coming decades, if, if, if you see that transformation, um, I, I think they have a chance to come back. But it won't be the same party we know today.
Katie, you get the last word. Yeah, and I think just from like coming again from this like younger generation perspective, um, as I mentioned before, and, and just kind of the sentiment I get from reading and from talking to others is that we have less of a an alliance to a party, right? We're more focused on issues. If you can become a party that can address the issues we care about in a way that we care about, well, we don't give a fuck whether you're Democrat or independent or something else. Just um, just address these deep-seated social issues that we care about, you know, like the coming debt crisis. I'm in a shit ton of student loan debt. Anybody else? Any takers? Yeah, and that's like coming crisis that's happening and we can't find high-paying jobs and all this stuff. So if you had a party come in, whether it's Republican or Democrat or otherwise, that said, hey, we have a fix for this, right? Or we want to help you out. I might be willing to change. All right, well, on that note, we'll, we'll wrap it up. I want to say thank you guys for coming. Thank you very much for this test pilot. Enjoy the rest of the evening. Thanks again.